welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Nicholas Dames. I'm an English professor at Columbia University and an editor-in-chief of Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. In this season of our podcast, we're exploring the ongoing significance, or some might say the waning prominence, of the novel as a cultural form in the 21st century. In the age of Twitter, TikTok, and streaming TV, why are we still reading novels, and what kinds of work are they doing in the world? If you're enjoying the podcast so far, we would really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. This helps new listeners find the show. Today I'll be speaking with Heidi Julevitz, a novelist and nonfiction writer, and Leah Price, a scholar of literature and book history. Together we'll be thinking about something that novels have always done, mash up different stylistic genres, and represent historical catastrophes. To explore how this is happening in contemporary fiction, we'll look at Ling Ma's novel Severance as a case study. Severance was published in 2018, and it's not really a spoiler to say that it's a novel about a plague. So when an actual plague, the coronavirus, struck the globe in 2020, you might have seen Severance pop up on lists of books that help us understand pandemics. The book was prescient, but it's interesting on its own terms. I also want to add that this season we're partnering with Harvard Bookstore an independent shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We love indie bookstores at Public Books, and maybe you do too. So we hope you'll consider buying Severance or any of the other books we discussed this season through Harvard Bookstore's convenient online shop. There's a link in our show notes where you can purchase books easily. A brief note before we dive into Severance. This conversation was recorded in January 2021, just a few days before the official end of the Trump presidency. Heidi Julevitz and Leah Price, welcome. Uh, very nice to have you both. Thank you for being here. And I would actually like you to begin by introducing yourselves. Sure. My name is Heidi Julevitz. I am a professor at the School of the Arts at Columbia University. I teach grads and undergrads. I have written novels and I have written books of nonfiction. And I am one of the founding editors of The Believer magazine. Leah? Hi, I'm Leah Price. I'm a professor of English at Rutgers University, where I direct the book initiative. And my most recent book is what we talk about when we talk about books. So I'm really looking forward to talking about this one. So by by this one, Leah, you mean uh, Ling Ma's Severance. It was Heidi, actually, who suggested that this is what we might want to use to talk about the novel, uh, the novel in general, that is. And so I'm going to start us off with a question, which actually I think is a, is a pretty hard question, to be honest. So you may have practiced this already, but I'm going to ask you to summarize Severance for, for us, at, 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 particularly, you know, having in mind people who may not know what the novel's about. So maybe one way to, to do this is I'm going to ask you each to start a sentence, severance is, and then go wherever you want to go with that <laughs> sentence, right? But um, Leah, do you want to take first crack at this? Sure, why not? Uh, this is going to be one long sentence, so I will take a deep breath. Severance is a first-person novel published just over a year before the onset of COVID-19, which is set in a post-pandemic dystopia, but around half of which takes the form of satirical flashbacks to Manhattan office life around 2011, punctuated by a cameo appearance of the real Occupy movement which is cut short by the imaginary counter-historical arrival of a zombifying virus from China, which sets off an escape from New York plot that ends with the by now pregnant protagonist, Candace, escaping a survivalist cult with which she's been holed up in a disused Chicagoland mall. That was an amazingly uh, hyper-subordinated <laughs> sentence that was worthy of Henry James. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to have to diagram it. Um, Heidi, 
you want to try this um, game too? Yes, I'm glad that Leah went first. Um, Mine's a little uh, vaguer, so it'll make more sense now that um, she's been specific. Um, Severance is a pandemic zombie novel enclosing a story about contemporary corporate workplace culture and the ills of global capitalism, enclosing a story about a Chinese family's immigration to the U.S., but at its core, it's a novel about nostalgia, how nostalgia is an affliction and a drug, how nostalgia is a mind control tool, how it can lead to ruin, and how it is also a source of salvation. Oh my goodness. Okay. So we have, we have a lot packed in there and, uh, I'm very tempted to actually talk about nostalgia right now, but I'm going to hold off on that for a second. Let us get nostalgic about nostalgia before you start talking. Yeah, about maybe nostalgia. that, right. And, and maybe, um, and maybe get nostalgic about something, something else potentially, which is, this is, you know, this is a season, uh, where we're thinking about the novel, which uh, is a form, depending on how you want to quantify it, which is anywhere from, you know, 400 to 2,000 years old. And I wanted to ask you both about your relations to the novel as a form. So Heidi, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you because you've, you know, you've worked across many genres in your career. You've, you've been a writer of nonfiction, a writer of criticism. You, as you said, you're a founding editor of The Believer, but you've also written four novels. So, Mm I'm going to ask you, though, this question as a reader. What's yes. What's been your relationship with the novel as a genre as a reader? Do you How much do you read? How do you read novels these days? Mm. Um, okay, well, I guess we're getting to nostalgia really quickly here because I do, I think it's true of probably any person that um, you are nostalgic for a time in your life, which tends to have been when you were younger, when you really had the space to lose yourself in the world of a novel. So I'm, I'm nostalgic for that capacity that I, that I have, I don't want to say that I've lost it, but I think by some combination of being older and busier and just a plain old adult. And then of course the novel, um, being challenged maybe by an ever intensifying fascination with fictional real world (laughs) (laughs) happenings. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess it's easier for me to talk about my relationship to this particular novel. Um, I read this book while I had COVID and I was trying to um, track back how I made the decision to read this book when I had COVID and maybe the answer would just be really obvious um, because I had COVID and it was about a, a, a disease not dissimilar to COVID, at least in terms of how it spread. And I think that I read this book or what I was looking for in this book um, was a survival story. Because mm. I think in addition to being about nostalgia, that this is a survival story. And I, I wanted to, um, I wanted advice <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I wonder if that's like almost like anticipatory nostalgia in a sense, the, you know, the the slogan like one day we'll even I'll even look back on this as something worth missing, which I, yeah. I you know, certainly I mean, I like in March and April do. in New York City is, is would have been insane, right? But but in a strange way it's it's already there. Yeah. I I I agree, which is utterly perverse. So it's possible to be nostalgic for that time. It's in and in a, yeah, I mean the, the relationship with the novel with the uh, with the form as bound up with with early memories. Yes, um, Leah, you you're an English professor and a literary critic. So, like me, you're partly professionally invested in this form because it you know helps pay the bills, I guess, in some sense, right? But I'm I'm curious to your about your relationship to novels on on the more personal level, and so in your spare time. Um, to the extent you have any, what do you turn to novels for? Heidi drew a distinction between reading as a young person and reading as a middle-aged person. And I think my dividing line would be more between reading while taking notes and reading hands-free. So the great thing, as you know, Nick, about being an English professor is that any reading, anything 
can count as work. Proverbially, we can read the back of the cereal box. And the lousy thing about being an English professor is also that it's so hard to turn off your analytical brain. The only way that I have found to turn off my analytical brain is literally to incapacitate my hands to prevent myself from taking notes. And that's why the only two places I can really read for pleasure these days are in the bathtub, where I know that my hands are too <laughs> wet and soapy to grasp a pencil or pen and that I can't have any electronic device in there without getting electrocuted on the one hand. And on the other hand, listening to audiobooks on the kind of long, solitary walks that many of us are taking during this pandemic that bear some resemblance to the long walks through New York taken by the protagonist of this novel. I too read in the bathtub, although I, I've given a <laughs> shot on taking notes and it, yeah, it often doesn't, it doesn't end well. I'm maybe a little, <laughs> maybe a little more reckless than that. Um, Heidi, can I ask you, when you read this, when you were ill, first of all, this is a, just a practical question. Did you read it on a screen or did you read the, a, a codex version of this? I read it. Um, I read the actual book. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. hard, the, the object. You, you read, read the object. I read the using 3D pages. Yeah. object. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is, is that how you normally consume novels? Well, yes. However, I did um, so many discoveries, I guess, we made over the pandemic. Leah's talking about um, listening to novels and going on walks. Maybe the pandemic was about learning to consume in new forms because I had a panic. I mean, it's funny you think about the things you panicked about not being able to have access to at the very beginning of the pandemic. And my two things were milk and books. <laughs> and so, um, and so I, uh, I bought a Kindle immediately, like as, as soon as things started to look kind of dire, I bought a Kindle and I started to read on the Kindle because obviously the bookstore closed down the street for a while. And so I did start to read on a Kindle, um, but not this book, this book I read yeah. in hard form. Right. Leah, can I ask you one question about sure. audiobooks since we're talking about alternate alternate technologies? Um, can you give me an example of an audiobook that you've read and enjoyed recently and 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 maybe say a bit about why it was in the form of an audiobook that 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 might have worked for you? Well, unlike Heidi, I read Severance as an audiobook and one obvious reason that it works relatively well as an audiobook is that it is a first person narrative. You and I are both Victorianists, Nick, so you may have thought more than I have about the audiobook as, in a way, the return of the dramatic monologue of a strongly focalized, oralized, first-person voice narrating. And in general, although there are exceptions, I tend to listen to first-person narratives and to read third-person narratives, which I don't know whether anyone has hard evidence about this, but I do wonder whether that's, whether the audiobook is part of what's driving a resurgence of the first person in fiction. I don't know whether you have thoughts about that, Heidi. That's so interesting. Um, I guess maybe the first person's always kind of been a big part of my reading life. So maybe I wasn't as aware of it um, being more or less in favor. But I think what you say about the monologue, the dramatic monologue and listening to that, I think that's so fascinating. Can I can I ask you both, since we're on this question about the, the, the voice of the novel, I mean, which in your case, Leah was literally a voice speaking to you. I'm curious to hear both of you try to characterize the the voice of this novel. So the the it is it's first person narrated by a, a, a young woman named named Candace Chen, who's you know narrator and protagonist both. You know, to me, she seemed, I mean, interestingly, kind of a muted voice. Some of the words I was thinking about and thinking about this was that she's a little recessive or maybe even a little washed out. 
which is also very familiar from a lot of 19th century first-person narrations. But, you know, she seems to, she, like, she succeeds in her job largely because she sort of just fits in seamlessly. She doesn't, she doesn't certainly doesn't do the glamorous work at her job. And she also kind of survives a, a, a quasi-apocalypse by more or less becoming kind of invisible, right? But I don't know, that seems a little bit at odds with, Leah, what you're saying about the the kind of intimacy that's formed with this voice. So, Heidi, what did what what did you make of the the voice of the novel? I mean, yeah, I guess I would say recessive to whom or washed out to whom. Um, I feel like she very strategically um, kept a lot of her cards close to the vest in terms of the other characters in the novel as she made her way through her work life and her love life and then her post-apocalyptic survival life, right? But in terms of her relationship to me, I didn't feel that way at all. I felt very mm-hmm. close to her. I felt like I was a confidant. I felt that compared to the relationship she had to everyone else in the book, I was I was her best friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's right, because there may be actually no one else in the novel who can really compete with the reader for for intimacy with this voice. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Leah, did you did you feel that way? I mean, you, of course, you had a slightly different technological relation to this because you were listening. But is that something that resonates with you? I love your take on the lack of glamour going with the inaccessibility or recessiveness of Candace's voice because. Of course, usually when we learn that the publishing, usually when we are taught by a novel that the publishing world is not as glamorous on the inside as it looks on the outside, that debunking happens in more of a, let's say, devil wears Prada mode where we learn that the publishing world is a snake pit full of backbiting and dirty tricks. But Candace's world, because her job consists not of being an art girl, these glamorous, more editorial side jobs that Candace fantasizes about, but rather Candace's job is in logistics. Candace is associated with the more literal dirt and grime of book production, even though in some ways this looks like the conventional office novel set in Midtown and Candace's office is right above Times Square, the novel also takes us to manufacturing facilities in China so that we've got a kind of comprehensive tour of both the more glamorous and the less glamorous sides of the publishing world on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I really like your idea, Nick, of Candace as the inheritor to maybe the kind of 19th century novel, 19th century historical novel protagonist that the late great literary critic Alexander Welsh spoke of um, using the example of Walter Scott's Waverly novels as the uninteresting, uncharismatic protagonist who is a witness to history without himself being a participant in that history. Um, And so what you've said just now about that historical genealogy helps make sense of something that puzzled me about the kind of witnessing that Candace does roaming Manhattan with her smartphone snapping photos for a blog called New York Ghost, with the ghost definitely being a figure for the kind of elusive quality of the witness that you were talking about. So on this question of her possibly invisibility, elusiveness, you know, we we probably need to talk about the question of race here and that this is, among other things, among the many, many things this is, this is a a novel about an Asian-American woman. And 
Um, and those art girls that you were talking about, Leah, in, at the publishing firm in the novel are, if memory serves, like exclusively white. Um, they also, if I remember correctly, vanish pretty quickly, right? And I can't remember now if they if they have if they meet their fates in in the pandemic that sweeps the novel, or if they're simply she simply never sees them again. We don't know what happens, but they 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 vanish, right? Um, Candace doesn't. But I wondered, Heidi, do you think how do you think? race plays into the voice that we're hearing and and particularly maybe it's the, the sense that you're as close to her as anybody else in in her world it's interesting i really did not find her elusive and i didn't find her invisible and i didn't find her um recessive and i didn't find her um like obviously yes she has she has this blog and she is observing um New York and recording it as it is emptied out of people. But I find her to be very engaged. I mean, I think if I'm to, to think about a more sort of like recessive and accessible character, I, I guess maybe I think of like a Joan Didion narrator or something mm. like that, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if that complicates the race question or what, but I... I I really did not experience this narrator that way at all. I really felt that um, again, kind of returning to like a survival narrative. Um, this is a this is a novel of strategy, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's a novel of strategy. It's like strategizing your way through assimilation, strategizing your way through um, sort of facelit faceless corporate culture, strategizing your way through a relationship, um, a pregnancy, how to raise a child. And all of that felt to me to be deeply engaged with the world in a, in a very proactive way. That's really interesting because uh, what you said about strategy, I, I wonder if part of what one's, obviously the strategy that she has to undergo is, is, is produced by things like pandemic and, you know, uh, but I wonder if it is tied to race in some sense because and I'm thinking of exactly some of the questions that came up for all of us probably in March and April when when you, Heidi, were reading this novel for the first time, where at least I remember finding myself really confronted by these strategic questions, almost if I like for the first time, you know, how how am I going to, what if the supply lines fail? How am I going to get milk? How am I going to get books that I want? How, how are we going to lead our lives from day to day under circumstances that are really changing and precarious? And And I wonder if my ability to not have to engage with those strategic questions, or a lot of them at least, for most of my life um, has to do with my race. And if there's something about assimilation, because this also is a novel about assimilation, that makes you, know, it makes you a little bit more attuned to strategy than those who aren't. I, I, that's a, a kind of guess, but it's interesting, you're right. She's strategizing in every aspect of her life how she fits in in almost every place is a question for her to, she has to think really hard about it and, and generally succeeds at it for the most part. Right. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it's a, it's a race question. It's a gender question. I think, um, everyone is coming from a different space of, um, of things coming easier or are given to you or et cetera. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, it felt like a really, um, a really careful accounting of how she existed in different situations um, mm -hmm. and how she survived them. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I enjoyed during the the early phases of the pandemic was actually reading, you know, heist narratives for some reason. And, and that was because I liked, at that moment of sort of radical uncertainty, I liked narratives where people have a plan and the plan works. And that was deeply soothing to me to have, you know, a bunch of people getting together and solving a problem. So I, now you're, you're getting me to reconceive this novel in terms that have to do with, with that kind of, that kind of anticipatory thinking and, and how it, how it works in multiple, multiple contexts really. Hi, I'm Rachel Cass, and I'm the Buying and Inventory Manager at Harvard Bookstore. My name is Alex Merriweather, and I'm General Manager at Harvard Bookstore. Harvard Bookstore is a unique and special place to shop, a locally owned, independently run Cambridge landmark since 1932. 
So we're partnering with Public Books on this podcast season about the novel, and we wanted to tell you, the listeners, about our signed first edition club. Each month, Harvard Bookstore offers a signed first edition club members a signed first printing of a newly published book, selected for both its literary merit and potential collectability. Recent selections for the club include My Year Abroad by Chang Rae Lee and Perestroika in Paris by Jane Smiley. You can either sign up yourself or give a gift membership. Gift memberships go for six months, one year, or indefinitely. And each month, we will send you a signed first edition, first printing copy of that month's selection. And they make really great gifts, and they're a really beautiful collectible edition. You can visit us online at harvard.com to purchase books through our website, browse and attend our upcoming events, and sign up for our email newsletter for more book recommendations. Okay, back to the show. We've, it's interesting, you know, when we talk about this novel in the ways we already have, we we keep touching on different genres. And I think one of the things we might want to pause and, and take in here is the fact that this novel, take you know, it, it borrows from so many different kind of genres. And, and Heidi, when we talked about this earlier, you, you called it uh, a genre cocktail. And it is, you know, there's a lot of ingredients in this cocktail. Um, and... So one of them is is plague novel, I suppose you could say, right? Or, or you know, pandemic novel. Can you say a bit about how the novel handles this question? First of all, of of of, of pandemic or plague, because it 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 sounds to a lot of people like COVID, but it's also not like COVID. Oh yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a spoiler. Where <laughs> Stop listening now if you haven't finished the novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't think we're giving away the ending, right? No. Uh, yeah. I mean, here, I'll say this. I'll say this. I would say that what I found really fascinating about the way that the plague pandemic aspect of this book was handled is that it kind of wasn't the most interesting thing that was happening in the book, right? Like, it, it almost was... Um, it it was her present situation, but I really love how everything feels very equally weighted in the book. That in a sense, like going to the, you know, Bible factory um, in China, I felt like that had almost the same weight in a sense as um, going on a stalk, which is when they would go to um, houses uh, after the after the disease hits and she's joined this sort of cult um, un, unwillingly yeah. <laughs> or yeah. accidentally, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so it wasn't, it isn't like a before and an after. It's more just everything has sort of the same weight. And I thought that was, again, another one of the really unique things about this novel. Yeah. And by... By other things, I mean you know we we could we could generate a list, right? This is a story of immigration. It's a comedy of office life, and you know Lee has alluded to this before. It's um, you know I, th- I don't think I'm giving anything away and saying it's a, it's a zombie novel too. It's a road novel, you know that she hits the road at one point. It's also you know a very much a leaving New York novel um, and saying goodbye not just to New York but sort of a time of your life where that you associate with New York that's something like your twenties, I guess. It's also a novel about a cult. All, all these, you know, all these genres are are there, and I could probably add add many more if I thought about it. I want to ask Heidi about this this genre cocktail or this kind of mashup. I think if you had described this to me without my having read the novel, I would have thought this couldn't possibly work. Like this is this is almost like the kind of joke about like a, a bad pitch for a Hollywood movie where it's just you know it's X plus Y plus Z. You know, it's, those things can't possibly work in the same frame, right? But so my question to you is, well, so what does make this work? Is it is it the evenness of attention to them? Or is it is it what else might make these things coexist together? I was thinking about this question a little bit. And I mean, I, I guess every book is its own cocktail. And maybe this gets back to the question of reading. One of my regrets as a writer and a reader is that I didn't keep a list of books from the minute I started reading of all the books that I've ever read. I'm sure everybody has that regret, but it seems to me that if you had that document or had that um, had those stats <laughs> and you could look at every single writer and see the list of books that they've read, like that is, that's your sensibility. That is the cocktail that's sort of being mixed from the time that you start reading. And, and 
when people um, are really tapped into that unique um, reading DNA that they have, I think that that's when you get a really, um, you get a book that feels different from other books hmm. that really feels, oh, wow, I've never read a book like this before. Hmm. Right. And of course hmm. you have it because there is no other human being on the planet who has read the exact combination of books that you've read. I mean, another person who I think of who did some like cocktailing, let's say would be George Saunders. Right. I mean, he's somebody who also, I think probably is a, maybe in a very distant way, someone who you could see as a, as a four, four person of this book, you know, Saunders sort of took a kind of like Cheever, um, a, a, like a, a, a Cheever Carver kind of landscape and combined it with like a Bartholomew and then a, like a sci-fi, sci-fi. Yeah. sort of, right? So, yeah. I mean, and, and, but he's funneling it through his very unique sensibility that has been formed by reading all of these things. And so that's how I feel about this novel as well. Yeah. That's really, I mean, that's interesting, the way you describe this autobiographically. This is a novel by somebody who has read a lot of different genres and, and read them in a serious way, probably from from quite young. And all of those things combine in this, in, in one way or another, and, you know, in, in, in somewhat unstable mixture, which make, is what makes, it, what makes it interesting. Leah, can I ask you about uh, status a little bit here? Because... Another thing one could say about the genre mixture is that, like a sociologist of literature would say, well, some of these genres are, we would call high status genres, and some of them are low status genres, right? Like the zombie novel element of it, and you know, the, the zombie novel element versus the novel of immigration. Um, those, are, those occupy, we think, different cultural zones. Does, does that matter for this novel at all? I certainly think that it matters for the success of this novel because it has managed to be both a commercially successful novel, bolstered, no doubt, by the, you could say, lucky timing, though in so many ways it's not lucky, of uh, appearing just over a year before the pandemic, and at the same time, it is a serious work of literary fiction. If we can come back to the Bible production plot, one of the jokes, I think, about the Bibles that the protagonist, Candace, uh, works on outsourcing is that her company, which is a kind of intermediary between publishers in New York and manufacturing facilities in China, specializes in what you might call gimmicky books. So uh, art books, books with tricky production demands, and Bibles that have some kind of material gimmick, like having a gemstone set into their cover, that allow a public domain, endlessly reprinted text to set itself apart in the marketplace. It's hard to think of a text more serious and weighty than the Bible, and yet there's something faintly ridiculous about the versions of it that Candace works on in order to carve out some space within an already crowded market. Like a, one of them, of course, that she works on is right, the Gemstone Bible, which is, if I'm remembering correctly, has the the the, the front cover is studded with your birthstone as a, as a gift for presumably young girls or something like that, right? And it's, you know, in, insane production problems are produced by this, not to mention deaths of laborers in China, right? So uh, from mining, you know, and, and or grinding the stones for these, for these gifts. And that bringing the, the seriousness of the content down to the level of the object as a way to partially evacuate the seriousness is something that, yeah, that, that, that the book does. It's not the only communications technology, though, that, that 
occurs in the novel or that the novel's interested in. The other one, if, you know, would be would be part of the sort of thing that we're dealing with right now, right? Uh, um, both teleconferencing and cell phones. So, you know, it's a key plot point when the cult that she finds herself in takes her cell phone and destroys it and then gives it to gives it back to her as a kind of souvenir of her past life. It's you know, it's just a brick at this point. And I I couldn't help but wonder if this is some sort of weird reference to the competition the novel has in our in our lives, certainly right now, the competition of the, the phones we carry around with us and that occupy so much of our attention. And I, I, I wonder, but I, I wonder if that's strained. And I guess, Heidi, my question for you is, when you write, when you write fiction in particular, are you thinking about how novels engage with other technologies or need to distinguish themselves from other technologies? Are you thinking about that kind of competition or do you screen yourself from that when you write fiction? You know, I think what I've started to screen myself from is the stress and pressure of um, of defining what I'm writing. I had a kind of interesting conversation once with somebody where, because I haven't read, I haven't written a novel in a while. I've been writing nonfiction, and um, and I that was stressing me out. <laughs> it felt <laughs> like it was a. It felt like I had abandoned some like um, some. Uh, I had abandoned, I had abandoned the reason I'd gotten into writing in the first place. And, um, and I remember talking to somebody about this and, and he just was like, what did he say? He said something like, why are you worried about it? You're just, you're just writing. He's like, you're just producing <laughs> writing, you know? And so I think that in the end, the, the real question is how to engage with anybody through the written word. I would say, mm. you know, not to, not to say that, all um, genres are equal necessarily, but I would say that um, that the challenge is just like how how to speak to somebody, you know, like how to actually speak to somebody if you want to be heard. <laughs> you know, I mean, that sounds so so elemental, but like, I mean, in the same way, maybe that we were talking about, you know people maybe because of race gender sexuality whatever have engaged in different degrees of strategizing over the course of their lives in order to survive or thrive um maybe in a similar way um like literary fiction has not had to fight so much for its credibility or its validity um and i'm not saying like death of the novel kind of talk i'm really just saying like written word. How do you get people to engage in the written word? And I think it has always had this, um, this status so that it didn't have to try so hard to survive. And I think it kind of does now. And mm. I think that's really interesting. I think yeah. that that actually puts some really good pressure on people. Like no one's going to just, no one's going to read what you're writing. Just even just because you're XYZ famous person anymore, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 not. It, it can't be taken for granted that you have this kind of status. Uh, either you or or the thing you're producing has the kind of status that it just is going to get attention paid to it, no matter what. Do you agree, Leah? Do, uh, what's your what's your perspective on this? I might approach that question via the date to which the novel is backdated. That is it comes out in, I think, fall of, two, or late summer of 2018. It's set pretty identifiably, thanks to the Occupy movement, in 2011, at a time when ebook sales were increasing rapidly, which is not so much the case now, and people were talking a lot about the death of the book, meaning the printed book. And I think you see traces of that debate in Candace's references to, offhand references to the book as an animal. I think at one point, the narrator refers to uh, the Bibles for which her company is an intermediary as a difficult animal. It's fragile pages prone to ripping its book block prone to warping. And there's another point when Candace 
confesses being unable to actually read the words of the Bible anymore because her mind is so full of what she calls the awful Awful, O-F-F-A-L, meaning, uh, you know, the innards as if the book had a stomach full of tripe and sweetbreads, except that they're the paper and the ribbon marker and the end sheets and the cover. And in some ways, you could see this as a riff on the long history of Bibles being literally made out of the body of dead animals that is made out of parchment and even after paper comes in uh, bound in leather, except that the Bibles that Candace works on were told many times insistently are bound in a kind of PVC, a kind of fake leatherette that we're told is also used for H&M handbags and shoes and wallets, so that it's as if the book is damned if it does, damned if it doesn't. It's both degraded by being compared to a dead animal being butchered on the one hand, and then on the other hand, any kind of distinction between the book as an abstract spiritual object and a cheap handbag sold at H&M is being collapsed. So the book is just another kind of fast fashion accessory, Mm. just another disposable commodity. You specify Occupy as the, at least the historical starting point of the novel. So I had the feeling that I find myself I find myself interestingly really interestingly confused by the historical timeline of the novel because it it began to feel to feel to me like almost every significant event of the last 10 years was was here in one form or another. So it's not just occupy, it's not just covid, it's, there's also a hurricane that's very hurricane sandy-esque that is here um as if there's almost a kind of greatest hits of the aughts or you know worst hits of the aughts sometimes. Um so it was a little hard for it. almost felt like there was a kind of historical telescoping happening where it felt like everything in the aughts was happening at once, which happened to, you know, from my perspective, and again, maybe it was when I was reading, it happened to really make that previous decade feel just awful. If if you imagine all the all the things happening at once. How did you how do you think she handled time? in this novel, I mean, or, or historical time, however you want to put it. But I, I was really intrigued and also a little puzzled by the way this works. For me, the thing that was hard to get my head around was not that collapsing of different historical events. So the novel is a kind of anthology of, uh, as you say, Nick, um, greatest hits, but rather the kind of whiplash that I got from the novels uh, zigzagging between the biggest picture kind of historical time involving the possible extinction of the species and then the dailiness of office work. By my count, uh, the phrase, uh, I went to work, comes up around a dozen times over the course of the novel, and they're often very ostentatiously clustered together. And since we're talking about pandemic time, I'll just say that for me, the back and forth between cataclysmic historical time and routinized, boring small bore daily time helped make sense of an experience a lot of people are having right now, I think, where a lot of people who are lucky enough to be working remotely, where you get these inanely chatty um, reminders from Outlook saying things like, how's your week going? You've got... (laughs) Five calendar items upcoming upcoming today. Way to go, checking three items off your to-do list. 
Um, that there's something about the office itself as a bulwark against the disintegration of time during a disaster. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I l- let me let me put this a slightly different way, and and maybe maybe Heidi, maybe this is something. I, I don't know if this if you think this is a useful term. Is this is this like a is this a Trump era novel? Is this? I, I'm wondering how to peg its contemporary its contemporariness because I, I know that you know one of the reactions people had to this was how it feels so much like the present, like this this it it was you know whether fortunately unfortunately it caught the moment, and I agree with that in some way, but I also want to figure out well so what is the moment <laughs> what what is what is the yeah. moment that she caught? I mean I guess that's maybe all right now we get to talk about nostalgia. Yeah. Let's go. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that if if we're going to call it a Trumpian uh, era novel, I would say that it is about the, it's the perils of nostalgia. It's like, and, and how misleading nostalgia can be, right? I mean, you're wanting something that already happened, but in many cases, what you're desiring um, it it definitely wasn't the glory days for uh, um, most people on the planet, and it might not have even been the glory days for you. You know that it is this um, it's this zombifying trap in a way, right? Um, yeah. And so it felt yeah. to me very much about um, a, a critique of that way of thinking. That's what it felt yeah. like to me, um, and so that felt very Trump era in terms of its prescience and. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, yeah, the people yeah. who, I guess without ruining anything, the people who succumb to nostalgia are the ones who get sick. Yeah. Nostalgia yeah. is nostalgia is the is the weakness in the immune system. Mm. That's a lovely way to put it. So, Leah, tell me what you think about this uh, in relation to the idea of it being a Trump era novel. And is it is it nostalgia or is it maybe sort of the complementary opposite of nostalgia? Would it be something like trauma? Because I know many of us feel vaguely traumatized by the last several years. And that too can have a, produce a feeling of repetitiveness somehow. What do you think? So I'm still struggling to figure out what role the 80s play in the novel, because you'll both probably have been struck by that moment where Candace is wearing her mother's contempo casuals uh, hand-me-downs. And of course, it's a little bit to hit you on the head, symbolic, contempo. What does the contemporary mean when it's 30 years out of date? But I couldn't help feeling when I read that, couldn't help wondering whether the role that the 80s played in Trump's career had something to do Mm. with Mm. that particular vintage, that particular swathe of what you've persuaded me, Heidi, is a much more generalized nostalgia. Well, that's that makes the contemporary scene both much more capacious in one sense, because you're suggesting that the novel is giving us a sense of the contemporary that at least goes back to the 80s, but also more terrifyingly claustrophobic, because it says something about we're this is still the long 1980s. I mean, we we still do as of today still have Donald Trump as our president. That's there's no more 80s fact than that, and. Um, Boy, that's that's really horrifyingly closed <laughs> off. I, I, I don't want to be there anymore. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm struck I by guess that. Yeah. I'm wondering whether, yeah, whether there's a kind of scaling up of the routinization and habituation and repetition compulsion of the fevered from the scale of daily life in an office to the scale of history. Historical repetition. Yeah. 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 I mean, too, right? I mean, the 80s, that's such an interesting... I, I had not made the Trump in the 80s connection, but I think that's really, really interesting. And I wonder, too, um, like this again brings back this 
um, so not all nostalgia is created equal, right? So like we were not nostalgic for the eighties in the nineties, right? No. <laughs> we were, we're not, but, right. Yeah, um, yeah. and I mean, I guess whatever, I'll just speak from the contempo casuals, uh, side of things, but like, I, was not wearing 80s dresses until recently. And now I'm wearing 80s dresses again, right? That's my eBay search term. Um, I, you know, in fact, I did go on and look up, try to buy a Contempo Casuals dress after um, reading this book. And um, it's like full of eBay search terms, basically, if you want to just have the 80s lifestyle again. But the point is that these things, well, first of all, they're on a, they're cyclical, right? So like we can get over Trump, but the lesson is he's coming back. We will be nostalgic for this era at some point. Um, unless, I mean, this book is thus very hopeful in this regard. If you just sort of like, if everyone is just sort of, um, they've reached their sort of like apotheosis of nostalgia, they've just burnt out their cortexes and now they are, they are unable, they're living it all inside their bodies, but they can't enact it on the world, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's probably characteristic that you know in a novel that's dystopian we we've arrived at almost a dystopian <laughs> set of conclusions about it yeah. um yeah. so you know we we've been talking about severance for a little bit and i and i want to zoom out but maybe with obviously some of these concerns in mind to think about the central question that that this podcast series has been trying to grapple with which is what the novel might still do for readers today and I mean, that is a, as a form because the form, you know, has existed for anywhere, depending on how you want to quantify it, anywhere from 400 to, you know, 2000 years old. Um, what is it, what can it do for us? I mean, and, and I mean that politically or ethically or imaginatively. Heidi, I want to I start with you and see if you have, do you have thoughts about what the form might do now for us, particularly given all the other media options that are available to us? Okay, I'm saying this with total seriousness, and it's not a diss on the novel. It is a total, uh, it makes it a magical, it makes it magic. Um, it will help you sleep. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, yeah. well, first of all, it puts my children to sleep almost instantly. Um, and I um, have a hard time sleeping, but if I read fiction before bedtime, I can actually kind of ease myself down in a way. Not, I mean, I can't even read like whatever essays on the New York Review of Book website. Like that, that's not, it has to be fiction. And I think there is something about disassociating from your body and what's happening in your world um, and, and displacing that into another consciousness. I just feel my brain calm down. And I know that that makes the novel sound like some kind of sleeping pill or something, but it's like airplane mode for your brain. Like nothing else is going to come in. You really have to focus. It's a, it's, there's so um, few opportunities I find these days to just be like, I am just doing this one thing. And when you're reading a novel, at least one that's not on a screen that's attached to um, Google in any way, you're doing this one thing. Yeah. And it feels meditative and it feels soothing and calming. And that again, maybe sounds like not what um, people want novels to necessarily be, but I think that's incredibly valuable. And and actually, I think relates to Severance, particularly the office parts of that novel. I mean, one of the one of the sort of unsettling things that she wants to chart is that you know at that at a certain moment, Candace is entirely living in a twenty four seven world of hyper capitalism, particularly given the time difference between her in New York and the people she's working with in China. Nothing's ever stopping for her that, you know, it, it is fully 24 seven. And that the idea that the novel works against that by pulling you out of that kind of hypermediated consciousness and giving you rest, you know, giving, giving some definition to your days even, and asking for a focus that might take you out of that hypermediated consciousness. I, I think in some ways that is one of the interests of severance is how you, how you possibly get to that state. 
Well, that's actually really something interesting that you just said, that it gives definition to your days. It also just places you in time and space. And so, for example, I will never forget where I was when I read this book. That's true of all books I read. I know exactly where I was and when it was that I read them. Like I read this book while sick in March on my fire escape. You know, I will always think of myself sitting on my fire escape reading this book. And I don't feel that way so much with things that I read, you know, if I'm just reading like I, whatever, I read an article about X, Y, Z. I read this blog. I read this, that I can't, it doesn't have a time space stamp necessarily. And so it does feel just like a big bleed of time. Yeah. Yeah. I know I don't feel that way about anything I read on my phone, for instance, you know, like I read a a piece on my phone that that could happen anywhere at any point and I will never retain that information. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it could be again, like I always try to factor for like, I didn't grow up reading that way. And so therefore that is my response to this. But I actually will say that I notice it in my kids as well. So yeah. Yeah. Leah, do you, uh, I'm going to, Turn to you, and I wonder if your answer to this question of what the novel might do for us now is is similar or very, very different. I was really surprised by your answer, Heidi, because <laughs> for most of the history of the novel, it's worked against the rhythms of night and day. That is, if you think back to the original novel, to Don Quixote, one of the ways in which you find out that Don Quixote has been crazy by reading too many romances is the fact that he turns night into day, that he stays up all night because these romances are giving him insomnia. Again, going back to the idea of reading in the bath, it's a sense of being completely contained by this imaginary universe. Whereas other, most other cultural forms that I consume feel more like the pump of Purell or like the hand sanitizer wipes where you give yourself a little dab with them, but you're not plunged fully into them the way that you are into a hot bath. But for me, that kind of immersion depends on being willing to stay up all night reading something, not being able to stop. I wish that novels could conquer my insomnia, but if anything, they contribute to it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, but both of you have, I, I think one, one real similarity of these answers is both of you are, are, I think, talking about the resistance of the novel to something we would, would call multitasking. You, you, you cannot, I take it from both of your answers, you can't do something else. It's very, very hard to do something else, except perhaps start to fall asleep. Um, you're not going to get text alerts. Uh, you know, you're not going to necessarily try to cook or you know wh- whatever that other thing might be. That and that single-minded focus may have different physiological effects, but it's 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 interesting the the idea that that might be more and more unique in some way. And I suppose we have to think yeah. about how what the effects of of single-minded focus might might be. I guess, yeah. I mean, I feel so, I so feel my brain speed. I feel it after I have been scrolling and doing whatever. And then when I go to read a book, I'm like, oh my God. I mean, it really just feels like the gears in my brain are grinding. It's so hard to make that shift. Um, And then when you do, I can obviously like stay there for a long time, but I do feel like that is this, um, to say downshifting, I guess, has an implication of it being... um, well, no, there's nothing wrong with downshifting. No, it's it, it's a, it's, it's. I mean, I, I would say escape, but in, it, that that sounds like escapist. Yeah. But, but I don't know. I mean, it, fa- it feels so. I mean, it's escapist, maybe in a different way. It's like you're escaping your own, your own. Um, yeah, your your own RPMs. Like it's mm-hmm, just not that mm-hmm. pleasant, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I like the RPM of a novel is just like a much <laughs> like more sustainable your engine will last a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. and you you know, you you raised the question, Heidi, about, you know, particularly, uh, you know, we all have children. And I'm, I'm waiting to see if, let's say, you know, the, the generation of our children operate at higher RPMs, to use your analogy, than, than we do. And, or, or if not, and that is, I mean, I feel like I, I, the jury's out for me on that yeah. one. But uh, I'm, I'm interested to find out. 
Um, thank you guys so much for this. Thank you. I, I, I felt my own brain operating at the correct RPMs throughout. So uh, <laughs> this was this was uh, a real pleasure. And, you know, thank you for taking part. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank, thank you. you. It was. Thank you. It was so great to Likewise, meet you, Likewise, happy you. reading. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. You too. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Heidi Julevitz and Leah Price for sharing their thoughts about novels and disasters. You can find links to their work at publicbooks.org slash podcast, including lots of pieces Leah has commissioned as editor of our print and screen section. At publicbooks.org slash podcast, you'll also find a list of further reading curated by our guests in case you want to read more or use this material in your classes. We'd be so grateful if you would rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. You can follow the show and public books on Twitter. Our handle is at public books and Facebook to learn more about the work we do. If you have thoughts about this podcast, you can tweet at hashtag publicbooks101. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. Next time on Public Books 101, I talk to two medical doctors, Jay Baruch and Rishi Goyal, who have deep attachments to literature and the medical humanities. I'm really excited to ask them about how novels have influenced their work as physicians. So I hope you'll join me for part four of Public Books 101, The Novel Now, as we wonder, how can novels help doctors and patients achieve better medical care? This podcast is a production of Public Books, in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Kelly Dean McKinney. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to Audrey Stort at Harvard Bookstore and to the editorial staff of Public Books for the support for this project. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Thank you.